Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Health Felt Beat podcast. The mission of our podcast is to show the real-life challenges of implementing technology in healthcare. Podcast is sponsored by Demidas, a company that develops IT solutions for healthcare startups and companies. You can check more information on Demidas.com. My name is Ivan Dunsky, your today's host, and I'm joined by an honored guest, Julian Ranger a founder uh, at DigiMe. Uh, DigiMe is a company which returns uh, data to the individual to enable individuals to share more and better data about themselves, to enable services to provide more and better value. So in healthcare, DigiMe is the enabler of uh, patient centricity, which is widely seen as the future of healthcare. And that is something that we are going to discuss today. Julian, thank you for being here. How are you today? Pleasure. Uh, very well. In London, so one of my first times for quite a few months because of COVID. I used to be up every week and like everybody else, uh, now travel is not as regular. So uh, doing very well, thank you. Cool. Could you please give a brief background of what you do at Digimeet? Yeah, sure. I should sort of start off, I think, perhaps with my wider background because it's somewhat relevant. So originally I was an aeronautical engineer and then I was lucky in the early 80s to be in the right time, the right place, got into the beginnings of what we call the military internet. And I founded a business that was all about managing the networks, data and interoperability and built that to a, a worldwide business that I sold to Lockheed Martin. And that's relevant because Digime is based partly on the experience of how do you manage data? How do you make it available? How can you use it? And it was that experience that led to the founding of DigiMe, which is noticing what is it that is complicated about personal data, the data about you and I, is privacy, security, and consent. Yes, that's a big problem. But the bigger problem is the availability of data. How do you make it so that that data is available to be reused for new purposes, especially in health, where data is often locked away in silos and we can't even use it with the health infrastructure. And the answer is that you have to aggregate it at a point. And the only point you could reasonably aggregate it is the individual. And that's what DigiMe is all about, enabling individuals to get their data for themselves and then providing a simple method for services, whether that's a health service or anything else outside of health, to ask you for the data and for you then to share it with your consent so that we've achieved the ability to aggregate the richest data about an individual together at the individual, only held by the individual, and then for that individual to be able to consent it for use in any number of different services from there. And that's what DigiMe is all about. And it's very much based upon technologies and experience from that 25 years of military internet that we did before. Cool. And just for more context, could you please share, like, how exactly users can share their data with DigiMeet? So if we think about it in a easy-to-describe way, and then I'll mm -hmm. tell you how people will experience it for the first time. So the easiest way to think about it, download the DigiMeet app, and you say, right, I would like access to my GP record my wearables, my social data, and your DigiMe 
acting as a data facilitator for you, the individual. So in your case, you either will go make the connection to your GP, your wearables, your social data, and pull a full copy, which will then be stored in a repository, which is yours, fully encrypted, and only you have the key. Mm-hmm. So you've now got all that data. Now we do one other thing, which is we normalize it. Data comes in lots of different formats. So if you think about health, we often want it in HL7 version four or fire, but you might get it. So in the US, you might get a variation of that in Epic and a variation of Cerner. You've got mm-hmm. blue button, you've got CDA formats, all of which are different. We will normalize all of that to HL7 version four, and that's held by you now. Now that's one half of did you meet, you get the data. The second half is we have a consent stack, as we call it. So a service, it might be a diabetes app, it might be a hospital, it might be a researcher, it might be anything, wants access to your data for a value exchange. So maybe it's to keep you alive. So yes, I'll share my data for that purpose. So that service implements the DigiMe consent stack, which is an API. They register for a consent certificate, get a token, which they put into our API. That will then cause the individual to see a consent certificate come up on screen. It says explicitly what the data will be shared for and why. Mm-hmm. And if the individual says yes, then their DigiMe extracts a copy from their library and passes it to the service in that normalized format. And that's how it works if you think about it in that flow. Now, that's a kind of logical flow, but it's not a practical flow. And why is it practical? Because most of us as individuals don't really care about our data. We care about the results. So if there's a diabetes app that wants my medications, my wearables to keep me alive, I care about that, right? You use whatever you want to just, just keep me alive. It just keep me alive, right? Yeah. Now, many other use cases, of course. But so therefore, the way that most people will experience DigiMe is they would download the diabetes app. It will then say, if you can share your health data and your wearables with me, I can keep you alive. They then implement DigiMe, so somebody sees the certificate, authenticates, the data then goes into their repository, and they now using the app, and they've become a DigiMe user. Over time, they'll see the power of their data, and they'll download the app, and they'll use it for many other purposes. But the pra- So therefore, the pragmatic way most people will come in is through the first use case, and then people will see the power of their data and slowly over time, more and more people will want to have their data for many use cases, not just one, but for multiple use cases. And this it covers health, but it also covers finance and retail and all sorts of other things. And the interesting thing is we're seeing a, a blurring of the lines of what is used for health data. So for example, my social data can be really important when thinking about my mental health and understanding that. So we must, when we think health, not just think of my medical data, my wearables, other factors, phenotypic factors may also be important as well. And all of that is accessible when you have all data. So as I understood, a patient can share data with DigiMe through other apps, but can they share data through the DigiMe app itself? Well, they can. I mean, you can see the data and then you can choose to use the operating system capabilities to, if you like, forward some of that data by email or whatever else. But that's a fairly clunky way of doing things. Okay. But 
most people, most services that will want your data will use the Digimi API and the consent system. And that's important to you, the individual, because of course you give consent, but you're also able to withdraw it later. So you can say, no, I won't delete my data or you're not going to get any more. So that ability to have individual control is important to you, the individual, the ability for the service to have data that they couldn't otherwise get access to, right, is important for them. And the reason they get that data is because the individual has the right of access to all their data. So because the individual requests it from the GP, from the hospital, from the wearables company, mm -hmm. they get all of the data. And then once it's the individuals, they can do with it as they please. There's nobody saying you can't share it. So if you get a copy of your medical record physically in paper, you can photocopy and share it with whoever you like. But it's the same when you own it digitally. You now have the control. So it's not up to your GP whether they like the diabetes app or not. It's up to you because you own the data at this point. That's really interesting. So you focus on patients and try to explain the value of using DGME and then we can go to, for example, other wearables providers and ask them to share their data with DGME, right? Well, yes, I've always got to make clear that the data is never shared with DigiMe. Mm -hmm. We're just, uh, if you like, a courier company. We get the data mm -hmm. to the individual and we allow the data to go from the individual to the service. We actually don't see, touch or hold the data. It just transitions and we're dealing with the flow, but mm -hmm. we're never holding it. Um, we're never looking at it. All right. So it's very much data from source to the individual, from the individual to the service. Now, um, the two different modes I used, one is the individual gets the data and then decides to share it. The other is they have a service and they say, well, I want that service. So then they get the data for that service. It doesn't matter which way round it is that you do. It's always to the individual, then to the service. And what is your selling point to patients? Why they decide to use DGME? Well, the patient really doesn't decide to use DGME. It's the service that does. Uh -huh. But the service is then saying to the patient, we have this capability using DGME to get your data, but in a way that's private, consented, you have control. And so the service is selling to the patient. So they're using our services. Much like, imagine you're on a website, you want my credit card. I'm not really very happy to give you my credit card details, but if mm -hmm. you use a company like Stripe, it comes mm -hmm. up and I know that my credit card details are safe. They've got accreditations and stuff. So we're the safe way for companies to ask you for data, mm. but not only the safe way, the only way to get some of that data and to get the whole variety of data and to give you mm. control. So to name it uh, very simply, uh, you are a stripe, but for medical data. Yes, but not just for medical data. The medical data, financial data, social data, mm -hmm. wearables, media, we mm -hmm. cover all the things. Now it's true, however, that one of the largest markets and where we're doing a lot of early traction is in health mm -hmm. because health has a unique challenge that the data is hugely locked away. And in fact, you know, we only need to know this. I'm just moving home and I know that in my move, all my data will not get to the new GP should do, but it won't, right? But if I moved abroad, it'd be even worse. None of my data would follow me. 
right? So the only way to get to personalized medicine, which is the direction of travel for health, is if we, the individual, have the full copy of our data. It is the only solution. And that is why countries like Holland, for example, the leading edge of, of implementing this, they've got all the laws to make it done. It's why the US have meaningful use three legislation, patient directed access. So governments understand, even if they've got national health services, which is not the case in the US, of course, but elsewhere, is that the patient has to be the aggregation point if we're going to move to the future that we want of, of personalized medicine. So am I right that, for example, if there is a service, a healthcare service that wants to collect patient data, they can use you as a storage in a way and uh, do not think about HIPAA compliance or GDPR compliance, like they can handle everything to you. Effectively so, yes, because the individual's holding it. Now, when they then share the data, GDPR does apply, right? Consent, but we handle the consent for the businesses. Mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. Now, if they then take the data and they've got the consent, then that's fine in GDPR terms. If they hold the data, they'll see they've well, now got to keep it secure and everything else mm -hmm. to apply with GDPR. But if they process the data and then throw it away, so they just keep the results, well, then that's fine. They've sidestepped the issue. The same in HIPAA. But if they hold it, then they have to do it. But one of the nice things, let's take the diabetes app I often use as an example. So say it wants my medications or my wearables data. If it holds that data in the app on my phone, then the company never sees it. There is no GDPR. There is no mm -hmm. HIPAA, right? So it opens up new models of processing. You don't have to bring it back into the web services of the business. You can with consent. So the consent certificate says, where will it be held? Is it off device or on device, right? Because it differs. There may be some companies and I'm, I'm not so sure I want you to have that data. Oh, you're only going to process it on my phone. You're not seeing it. That's fine. I'll let you have it. Different people have different things that they will be having to consent with. That's interesting. Uh, so is data stored on patients' devices? Is this correct? No, the data is stored in the user's own repository and encrypted with a key that only they have. Now there's two ways. The user can have a default store. That's as it's a blob as you know, or with the app, they can choose to have that store in their own Dropbox, their own Google drive, their own OneDrive. Mm -hmm. And over time we'll add others. So people have the choice where they store it now. In the inevitable way of things, because people do trust HGB and everything else, we don't look at the data, we can't, is the way the architecture mm -hmm. is. Most mm -hmm. people use the default store, mm -hmm. but we give people the ability to put it where they want to put it. So it's a fully decentralized data. And this is really important because actually your data is safer with DGB than where it came from, because it's individually encrypted, it's completely decentralized for the individual. That's important because you're collecting your life's medical data bank data, et cetera. So this is a very private thing. So you do need that decentralized, fully encrypted, secure storage. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, uh, do, do you use any blockchain technologies? We don't in fact, and there's a reason for that. So the, the, the data is immutable, by the way, the encryption makes it mutable mm -hmm. with blockchain. But blockchain is when you've got uh, a transaction, really, you need a public record of something that happened. 
this is storage. You don't use the blockchain for storage. You're not going to store every single bank transaction on the blockchain. Of course, yeah. So this is storage. So no, we don't. Now, the consent certificates, some people may want those stored on the blockchain for, for long-term proof. At the moment, that's not the case. So I don't have any aversion to blockchain, but it's not applicable in the storage situation that we are using. It. So it's just a technology that is not applicable to what we're doing. Got it. Yeah. The next question I'm going to ask is, I assume that you uh, work with companies, right? So on one side, you help patients to store secure, but then maybe you provide some insights to other companies about this data. No, we don't. No, no. Very important. We don't see, touch, or hold your data. Okay. Uh -huh. so none of those things. So we don't process the data apart from doing the normalization. We're not mm -hmm. doing any insights or anything else. So no, your data isn't sold by us either individually or in group or anonymized. We don't do anything. Mm -hmm. We're just a okay. courier company. So when you put a check in the post, the Royal Mail or the courier company doesn't open the envelope and say, oh, look, £1.50 check or £500,000 check. They just deliver the check. It, they have no knowledge mm -hmm. of what is in that letter. And we're the same. We're doing the movement of data, the normalization, but we're not seeing it, not touching it, not holding that data, all right? We're completely <laughs> blind to the data. And uh, not doing even the, in an anonymized way. Nope. So as I understand, you don't want to affect the trust of a patient, right? Correct. In fact, I was talking with a health company this morning and they are researchers. They've got 10,000 patients. They want the data for 10,000 patients and they're going to create an anonymized pool. They've got a particular medical condition and they're going to do some research on that. That's fine. So they're going to go to their 10,000 patients and say to them, here, can you share your data using DigiMeek? Say anywhere they can get it. We, this is the company, will anonymize it and use it for this research purpose. That's fine. But DigiMe, we don't do that, right? We're just a data facilitator. We help the data go from A to B to C. B is always the individual because services, and they can be C, D, E, F, G services. Yeah, I think that's very interesting approach that you focus on very complex, but only one thing, and that's your primary business. You do not do like any other side things that you can do, but you just do one thing. That's... Yeah, no, so it's, the idea is that we're this horizontal layer. So I, I use an analogy, which mm -hmm. might help make it clear, because the analogy works on a number of different levels. So think about electricity. I don't We've got many, many different appliances. So I could probably buy 10 washing machines if I went to a washing machine company, right? Why? They just wash clothes. Well, because different people want one that looks good. There's lots of functions that are smaller, bigger, whatever, right? Now, if I provided the electricity and the washing machine company, you'd get one type of washing machine. That wouldn't really work very well. So that's mm -hmm. not a good answer. So my job is just to provide the electricity, or in this case, the data. Now, the data sources, there's lots of them, just like there's lots of power stations, nuclear power, wind mm -hmm. power, solar, tidal, mm -hmm. gas, coal, whatever. So think of those as the different data sources. So I'm like the national grid. I bring the data to your home, right? Yeah. Or the electricity to your home. Mm -hmm. You've then got a switch, which is the consent certificate, yes or no, mm -hmm. but you can have any appliance. So you can have any service you want. So there might be 10 different diabetes apps, all using electricity, or in this case, DigiMe. Mm -hmm. 
but you get to choose which one rather than me saying, no, I'm just going to give you one option. That doesn't make sense. So I'm the national grid. That's all I do. I get the electricity from the power supplies to the appliances and give you the switch. And the nice thing is that's the important piece, isn't it? Making the data available, making the electricity available. What we don't say is the national grid safe. Is it safe to plug in? We assume it's safe. The good news is with DGV, it is safe because it's private, secure, and consented. So that's just like you wouldn't be allowed to move electricity if it wasn't safe. You shouldn't be allowed to move data if it isn't safe. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we think of privacy, security, and consent as the basic things. The key thing that we're doing is enabling data to flow to the device's new services. But you should have a choice as to which service. It shouldn't be up to me to say this is the only research that's being done on your data. You want to be able to choose. And that's why we're a horizontal layer and anybody can use us. Yeah, well, with the electricity analogy, I think it makes uh, very clear how everything works and what is your main focus. That's great. And that's interesting. You mentioned the fact that much of your technology is based on the concepts uh, and technology developed for the military internet. Could you please share and elaborate more on that? Like. Yeah, what is the well, military internet? So the insight was this. So if you work in the military, one thing you don't want is what we call a node, a single place, which if you could destroy it, would interrupt the flow of data. Right? That mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Yes. But so we implemented these networks, lots of different networks, lots of different platforms on it. But you find that you have to have a node. It is impossible to aggregate all the data if everybody's trying to talk to everybody else, you have to create aggregation points. In fact, I helped create some. And when you realize that even in the military, we've got standards, we've got one customer, the defense department or whatever it is, strong contracts. We can't do anything else but introduce nodes. This ability for everybody to try and communicate with it doesn't work. It quickly makes you realize it's impossible in the commercial world to get every service to try and deal with every data source and everything else. You have to have an aggregation point. So the first thing was, it was obvious that the only way to solve the data availability problem was data aggregation. And the only place you could do it was the individual. So that's the first piece. The second piece is when we did that in the military, it was recognizing you can't then expect if you're making all this data available, everybody to understand every data language that the sources use, mm-hmm. because you'll never yeah, get used. For it's too much, difference. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I can't speak 110 languages or 180 languages. Actually, I can't really speak more than one, even though I used to be fluent in Japanese because I was born in Japan. But I like everything in English, right? I'm sorry, but I do, right? Um, I know you're multilingual, so you can go with a couple of languages. So therefore, normalization is a really key part to making the data useful. Mm-hmm. And the technology to do that and do it in a way which is scalable, doesn't require code, right, and can be done. That came from work that we did originally for the military in the late 90s, early 1000s. We've improved it. We've got better tool sets, of course, and things like that. Those were two key things. It was a key understanding that you've got to bring data together and that you have to normalize it. And of course, then the security architectures and stuff like that, that means that you understand how to make sure that the data is ultimately totally secure. Mm-hmm. Great. 
so patient data security is a big thing and a concern. Uh, and do you have any other mechanisms other than this uh, private storages, how you enable this patient data is secure? Yes, yeah, so it's difficult without diagrams to show everything that uh -huh. we're doing, but, yeah. but what you need to think about is that the most important thing about security is encryption. Of course it is. People think that's enough, but it isn't actually the most important thing is where are the keys held? Because if I can get access to the keys, then the encryption is pointless. Mm. And most, most issues come around because the keys are not very secure, either because they've got stupid passwords attached to them or default, or because someone can get into the key store, right? Mm -hmm. So people say, oh, it's okay, your data's encrypted, it's all fine. Well, it isn't all fine. It's the architecture where the keys are. We do not hold the keys. The individual holds the keys, right? And so that's completely decentralized. So that's number one is because of that way of doing it and in a way in which they don't have to remember it. It's not like a blockchain wallet where you have to remember mm -hmm. something long, long chain. It's dealt with in a much more user-friendly way. So that's number one. But how patients uh, store their keys? It's held in the DigiMe app and then held in the secure store on their phone. Uh -huh. And then if they don't have the app, it's actually held by the service they're using the service can't use it without the arbitration of the consent certificate. So it's quite a complicated model in, in some of the models, but fundamentally it's held either by the individual or the service, but in a way in which only the individual has control over it in both cases. So, so that's number one. Patient can lose it, right? Can't lose it. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And number two, unless the patient or the user is giving permission, in which case we have temporary control, but we never hold it. Ever. It's always deleted and gone. Mm -hmm. So having no centralized key store makes it hugely secure because there's no single point you can get. And remember, it's not really worth getting one person's data, right? Yeah, but course. it might be. If you're Justin Bieber, it might be getting your data, getting your social photographs might, might be quite amusing and it might make quite a lot of money over it. So you do have to care about an individual security. So what we actually do is we don't encrypt all your data with one key. Actually, what we do is we encrypt it with random numbers, and then we encrypt the random numbers with your key. And if you know much about encryption, this means that it's really hard. If you get hold of the encrypted library, it is virtually impossible to decrypt that, even with government-level servers, right? Mm -hmm. The way to do it. So the way in which you do it, now that's not the only security we do. There's more security than that, but just to give you a, a feel for the importance of it. And this is critical for us. I mean, if people's data leaked out of DigiMe, there would be no DigiMe. It has to be secure. And we've been audited by governments for health data and other data and passed every time. And that's a really key fundamental piece of ourselves. Yeah, that's interesting how we come to this next question about the governments and compliance. How do you deal with this different geographic regulations of patient data and how you work with them. Yeah. When I look at compliance, privacy isn't a problem. So privacy laws, HIPAA laws are not mm -hmm. a problem because it's baked into our architecture. So mm -hmm. we are compliant by the architecture. By default. Our, yeah. By default. Our biggest problem is actually access to data, mm -hmm. right? Um, because in the U S where it's private companies, they make it difficult and governments just make it even more difficult, right? They all, nearly everybody around the world, all the sort of uh, high-tech health countries will say, of course you have a right of patient access. Of course you do. But then they do nothing to enable it, right? They don't 
actively make that happen. Now, there are notable exceptions like the Dutch with their MedMay program. So we have had to go to places and companies and kind of force our way in and say, we're getting the data for the individual. Then when you do it, and like the UK, and I'm, I'm going to be very polite about the NHS. It's a great organization. By the way, it saved my life. I died at 18. You know, they got me back again. So I'm pretty much in a happy position with them. Nonetheless, their whole view of data is it's owned by the NHS. It's used by the NHS. And yes, we find it very difficult to send, but nobody else could possibly do that. Only we could. And then we come along and say, well, we want access for individuals. And they go, access for individuals. Yes, we have to allow that. Yes, we'll allow you to do that. Ah, but which contract vehicle? Ah, so you've got to get onto a contract vehicle. So I have to go through all of those things to get onto a contract. They don't make it easy. It's not like an API that I can just do that. Now, then, of course, there's lots of rules to make sure that I'm a pucker company secure. Those I all agree with. You should do those. But then we say, now, when the data goes to the individual, it's up to them what to do with it. It's got nothing to do. Oh, but it's, it's our data. It's, <laughs> it's the individual's data. And they go, no, 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 because it came from us. I said, yes, it came from you. But if I got a printout of my records, can I photocopy that and give it to anyone I like? Well, yes, of course I can. Uh-huh. Of course you can. Well, if I get a digital copy, can't I just make a digital copy of that and give it to our life? It's the same, oh, yeah. No, 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 it's not the same. Well, it is the same. Yeah. And it, but it's not because they're being deliberately trying to frustrate things. It's just because it's new, right? There's no process. There's no procedure. There's no manual on the shelf. So every time we have to go through the process with them and say, look, if it's okay that I could get a physical copy and I could photocopy do it, then I can get a digital copy. Oh, yes, I suppose so. Um, but what about data controller? It's not your problem. That's my problem. But aren't we responsible? Hmm. You're responsible to make sure that if DigiMe is helping the individual get the data, that we're not a shyster company. We're a good company. Yes, you are responsible. If you're giving me, DigiMe, access to the API to get someone's data, you should be checking my security, my privacy, my safety, safety policies. But that's all you should be doing, right? Once the data hits the individual, it's theirs. So there's a lot of issues we've had with access, the compliance, the understanding, but it's more a question of its early days for what we would call patient centricity. And inevitably people take time to do it. Now, the interesting thing is that people are beginning to understand that this is the only way to get to where they want to for patient, you know, directed medicine, right? Specifically for ourselves, but the logic versus the implementation isn't there yet. They're still sort of saying, well, I'm sure we could do that. I know I spent 8 billion trying to get data from hospitals to GPs back and I failed, but if I spent another 8 billion, maybe I could make it work. No, 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 no. Just give it to the individuals. It will cost you nothing. We do this for free. Yes, but if I spent another 8 billion, I could make it work. So, no, 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 no. You've got to do it this way. So there's a lot of learning, if you like, and that's going to be a question of time, people seeing those first use cases which are coming through now, and so on and so forth. So I think you'll see the floodgates open in a year to two years. And for example, the EU has actually stated that every individual in the EU should have access to their health data by 2030. Now, they're not doing anything about it, mm -hmm. but, but at least it's a statement. But countries like the Netherlands are being proactive. 
and not just proactive in saying, yes, companies, you can get qualified. So we're qualified for MedBay, what's called a PGO in their terms. And there's a number of different PGOs. I think we're the only ones that allow people to on-share it. That doesn't matter. But they're actually giving a subsidy. So they're actually giving us a €7.50 subsidy for everybody who gets their data. So they're actually paying to encourage the market to go direct, patient-centric, going on that. And I think when that feeds through and you start to see what that means for healthcare in Holland, then more and more nations will follow. But at the moment, you have to drag them there screaming. Interesting. And, and what do you think uh, their perception? Why do they incentivize this approach, uh, this shift, this mind shift? Well, it's, it's difficult. There are thousands of Harvard Business Review papers or changing culture in organizations mm-hmm. and everything else. It's the same. Is there a burning platform? If you follow the laws, there's a wonderful book for anyone who wants to talk about culture change called My Iceberg is Melting, The Penguin, and it takes you through the seven stages of culture change. Mm-hmm. what you need to do. And of course, the first is, is my iceberg melting? Is there a radical reason for change? And when you're inside a health service, you may not see that radical thing. So you may not know that the house is on fire, the iceberg is melting or whatever else. And if you don't, then you will never get down that change process. So the seven-step change process says, first of all, you have to recognize that what you're doing today isn't working, right? And if you don't recognize that today, then everything is new is difficult. And if you're inside a health service, it's hard to say we've got a broken data exchange model, which they have, right? So when someone like we and others doing the same come along, they can logically intuit that we're right, that they can see that it works, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they haven't inside their heart got the burning platform, the melting iceberg, whatever, that is initiating down that line. Now, you can get them there, but that's the thing that takes the time. So what we need to do in the industry, for those of us trying to change healthcare data to be patient-centric, is we need to show the world that there is a burning platform and there's a much better platform over here. You can move over here. Everything's really good. But that's our job. It's It's a cultural change. That's a really great mission. But how do you want to do this? How do you want to accomplish that? How do you want to make this? shift in, in, in perception. Well, so what we've done is through a lot of very hard work, we've opened up the data in four nations. So we've now got real good quality health data with wearables and other stuff. So my job mm-hmm. now is to get those new services and everything else using that data to demonstrate to the world it's better. Demonstrate that what I say is true, mm-hmm. right? And not just what I say, by the way, I mean, the community is, it goes to patient centricity. So for all of those who believe that patient centricity is the right answer, we now have the tools to do it with DigiMe, and there'll be others following along, right? So we now need to prove that this is the right answer, and then the culture change will happen, right? It's a much easier to see and to understand when it's real than when it's on paper and people talking about it. So we've done the hard work of getting the data out to the individuals. We've done the hard work of the first studies and proof cases, which we've been doing with pharma and other apps and stuff for the last two or three years. And now, just as we move into 2022, you will see real life into the hands of consumers and others, apps and services based. And that's when people will go, 
oh, I can see it, I can feel it, I can touch it. It's real. Now that will help the culture change. And also, I think that's also part of it that you need to convince end user that it's worth it. Because, for example, me as a patient, if I go to different hospitals right now, part of my data stores in one hospital and then another part of my data stores in another hospital. So if I go to another city and I go to the third hospital, I can provide data from those two. I know, it's crazy. Yeah, and and that that works in Ukraine, in the US, I think like in most countries. And most countries. Unless you're using one big healthcare system that has presence in different cities whenever you move them. And I think that in this perspective, your service is really valuable and can really make a difference when you have all your data and you just provide data to different providers. And, and with that, you can also enrich your data with your daily activities from your wearables when you do like when you go to gym or so on. So yeah, that's really like your passport. You provide your passport with your um, data you have. Yeah. That's absolutely the case. Now, the issue there is, of course, that it's a no-brainer. If you're a patient, this is obvious that you must should have all of your data together. But, of course, it's too expensive for me to go to all the individuals and market to the individuals, right? So I have to do it via the services in the first place. But I do expect within two to three years, at the, at the outside, it may be earlier in some countries, that people will very rapidly go, I get it. Because I have my data together, mm-hmm. I can now do this, 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 and this. But yes, it's utterly bizarre. I'm moving home. And as I said, the probability of all my data going to my new GP is fairly low, fairly low. But it being accurate, it's another. So um, just to use an example, because I never had my data, I didn't know what it said. I discovered in early 2000s that I had no spleen. I told you I died at 18. I had loads of stuff cut, that I broke about all sorts of things. And my medical record said I had no spleen, which was just wrong. Now, what that means is for the best part of 30 years, I was medicated as if I had no spleen. And that's very different for somebody who has a spleen. And it only got discovered because I had a wasp allergy. And then they gave me wasp stings to desensitize me. And then they stopped and they do a white blood cell count, right, to check that it's good time to stop desensitizing mm-hmm. you, etc. They said, Jesus, for someone with no spleen, you've got much too high a white blood cell count. I said, what do you mean, no spleen? Of course I've got a spleen. And I had this argument with a GP, right? So she says, no, it says here you've got no spleen. So in the end, they sent me for an ultrasound. And they said, yeah, strangely enough, you have a spleen. Now, had I had my access to my own record, I'd have seen that and gone, what do you mean? That's wrong. Mm-hmm. So for 30 years, now it never harmed me, by the way, so no harm. This. But for 30 years, there was the potential for harm because my medical record was wrong. And I didn't know about it. It's as simple as that. So even at the most basic level, patient access to their medical records is an absolute, absolute must, let alone what else can happen. Yeah, that's true. Could you please share with us what um, are problems that, that you are going to overcome in the nearest future and what is your primary uh, focus in your work now? So the primary focus is to get these use cases that prove this patient-centric model. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're working with researchers, we're working with apps. We're not, funnily enough, working with hospitals and GPs to pull the data in, even mm-hmm. though they should. 
but they're not there yet. They're not at that point. So we're working primarily with researchers and apps, pharma, et cetera, who have had difficulty accessing the data, but now can provide new services. So our focus in health is to get those use cases, get them into hands of individuals and show how easy it is. It is fundamentally inordinately easy and nothing in health data has been easy ever before. Right. And seriously, if you have a health app and uh, you're in one of the countries we currently support, you could have health data from individuals provided you convince them of the value exchange mm -hmm. in 24 hours, you could implement DigiMe interface and have access to health data that has never been able to be done before. You'd have had to spend a year begging, you know, and filling out forms and doing God knows whatever to get mm -hmm. access to health data. So now that we've made that available, as I said, 24 hours, you can have access to health data, right? Now our job is to get people using it for values that make sense in the health environment so that we've got those proof points. So therefore more and more health data will be opened up and then that's a self-fulfilling spiral at that point or flywheel. Mm -hmm. so that's our key focus. And I have a uh, kind of a technical question. So as a patient, as a user, can I download my data from the storage in any single format, for example, in CSV file or something? Yes, you can. Yes. So we always allow, one of the most important things is working on data portability, aren't we? Data from your GP, from your hospital, mm -hmm. from your wherever. Yeah, of course. Right. Mm -hmm. You must not be locked into DigiMe. There may be a better version of us. So we've always had the capability for an individual to export their data, right? It's an export in JSON format because the yeah. export format that makes sense mm -hmm. to do it, which may or may not be useful for an individual, but is useful for other applications that they would use. So yes, your data is never locked in to DigiMe. You as an individual can go through the export capability and export data. Yeah, that's cool. We are coming to the end of an interview and I have a question to you. What kind of advice can you give to other professionals who want to, to launch their healthcare app or do something, some startup in healthcare? What kind of advice can you give to them? Well, first of all, if you want data, use DigiMe, of course, uh, but, no, but, but seriously, healthcare is a slow burn, right? Mm -hmm. So you must be prepared for roadblocks with government rules and regulations and everything else. And you have mm -hmm. to be really, really detail orientated, if you like, mm -hmm. um, right? Because it is somebody's life, right? If you receive in diabetes type one as a signal and you convert it to diabetes type two by mistake, you could kill someone. So you've got to be very detail oriented. You've got to expect it to take time, right? But we are in a new era. So if you have a good idea, right, whatever that might be, processing it, displaying it, using it, searching it, you are actually in a new era where getting access to the data now is not your problem. Now, what you do with it, what value you extract from it, now that's your problem. That's where you add value, right? So we're in this cusp. But you must always recognize that there are rules on whether you're a medical device, who you're trying to sell it, et cetera, et cetera. So compliance and detail, if you're in healthcare, are absolutely, attention to detail is absolutely the most important. But I would say, yes, it is a bit of an advert for DigiMe, but we're not the only ones in the world doing this. Be right saying we're the leaders, but you can now access healthcare data 
much, much, much easier than ever before and with a lower compliance burden. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a big thing because you can do nothing without data if you want to build, for example, AI app or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that things we covered are very, um, I would say like you're doing the fundamental work for the healthcare. Yeah, it's, it's true. So now I want to end the interview with an exercise called rapid fire round. So I will ask you several personal questions and you will answer whatever you like. So I assume you're a busy man. Do you have a hobby? I have a number of hobbies, rugby, uh -huh. cricket, woodworking, reading. So, uh, yeah, a variety of different things. Sport has always been my release from, you know, doing things, team sports. So rugby, cricket, generally, but, uh, but then reading and, uh, woodwork, which are the sort of quiet things you just do on your own. Yeah. And what is your favorite book? Well, my favorite book is a book that would probably mean nothing to you, but it might do. So Biggles Flies East. So from where are you? So I was an aeronautical engineer and it all came from Biggles, but any Biggles book will do. So I've got one of the world's largest Biggles and Captain W. Johns collections. So you have to kind of be British to understand that. But look up Biggles. He started off as a First World War hero, but he represents all the right morals and can-do attitudes and everything else and aviation. Yeah, we'll check it out. What is the location that impressed you the most? Well, I've been very lucky. I have done a, an enormous amount of travel and I spent two years traveling the world as well. So I've been to many out of the way places, etc. And I'd say it's the wide open mm -hmm. spaces. When you go to the wide open spaces in this world, well, that's the Gobi Desert, Antarctica, the African mm -hmm. Plains. They just, they're amazing because you just stand there. There's so much to see, so much to do. And it's nature at its best. It's raw. It's, it's lovely. And I just think. Given a choice, I'll get, always go to a wide open space. Uh, I was a farm laborer at 16, but the wide open spaces are definitely my mindset. Yeah. And what is the one piece of advice that uh, you would give to your uh, 20 years old self? Actually, funny enough, it, we take more time off work. So in my twenties, I was, cause I had started my business very early at 23, which is sister's business. And I spent an enormous amount of time working, right? Now I'd always take every Saturday off, uh, which was a real relax, but I'd work Sundays and I'd say I probably overdid it. And having your full utilization of holidays is important for mental freshness, but also some things you can only really do when you're younger and all the rest of it. So I'd say work hard, but make sure you play hard, take your holidays and you'll be mentally fresh. So you'll achieve just as much, right? Maybe not so fast. Yeah. No, you'll, you'll, you'll probably do it as fast. I always remember one key time. Uh, this is back before emails. So when you went on holiday, you really had a holiday. These days, sometimes when you go on holiday. Uh, so I remember it, I'd been building the company from 86 to 90. It'd been manic, right? Going through this period of time. And I'd, for about two years, I really didn't have a holiday weekends down the pub because I'm British, couldn't get out of the pub. And I went away for three weeks skiing and then to New York, uh, with my girlfriend at the time. And when I came back in January, I was very relaxed and everything else. And I chewed through work and I realized that my previous three months had been so tired. I thought I was achieving a lot, mm -hmm. but actually in those three months, I probably did a month's worth of work because I was too tired and I didn't know it. And it was a real lesson to me. That's when I, this lesson really hit home. If you just work, you get so tired that you're not achieving. So you've got to have that mental break to 
make you achieve more in the time that you do spend. So it may seem strange. I'm not saying 35 hours a week, which the French seem to do much better for the British, but I am saying putting in a 90 hour week every week is just ridiculous, right? So, you know, 50 here, 40 there, 60, but whatever the number of hours you do, make sure you take five weeks good holiday a year. I will also add that when you're in stress, you can find yourself in a bubble. You want to like work more and, and more and more, and that there is constant loop. And unless you're out there, you can't see that you're in this bubble. Yeah, it's really true. Yeah. You definitely need to take time off. Yeah. So thank you for your time today. Before we finish, what is the best way to reach out if somebody wants to talk with you? Yeah. Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm at Ranger J and you can always email me at julian.digi.me. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest way. Or reach out on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only Julian Ranger on LinkedIn. So with the gray hair, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. So any, any one of those three ways would work fine. So at Ranger J, Julian at jranger.com or on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I would, will put all this in the resources section. In the Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Julian, for your time. That was a really fruitful conversation. It was great to learn about your experience and what you do in DigiMe. And yeah, thank you all listeners and see you in next episodes. Thank you very much, Ivan. Congratulations for the podcast series. Well worth listening to. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.